You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.net. I'm still stuck on Kobe Bryant. I'm having a hard time letting it go. Um, I was just watching the Lakers game, or at least the beginning of it, um, on Friday night when Usher was singing Amazing Grace, and it was really like a funeral was happening. And, yeah, just in the, the gravity of the loss um, is unusual because I think it's, uh, it's, it's odd because I, just, I don't think it's just basketball fans that are feeling it. Something, something's happening. There's something common in the loss that we're experiencing. And it's, it's, it's interesting because there is a lot more going on. Like, uh, we have an impeachment trial or something like that happening. Um, the Super Bowls tonight. But I've still been thinking a lot about Kobe Bryant this week, and it's causing me to consider myself and others and our humanity and our ability to change. Eventually, I want to talk to you about how you can change and grow, even when it feels like you can't. This week, a lot of us remembered Kobe Bryant. And there he is. There's Kobe Bryant next to the pound for pound greatest of all time. Um, I can talk about Alan Iverson all night, too. He's a hero of mine. We remembered him, and we had to wrestle. We remembered Kobe, and we had to wrestle with all the strengths and flaws and wonder. Did he change, his, did he change by the time his life came to an untimely end? I was writing and thinking about it this week, and I, I don't usually do this, but I wrote something for my blog, and I wanted to share a part of it with you. I think it's okay to feel all your feelings about Kobe Bryant without losing sight of who, of, of Kobe Bryant's humanity. And I'm going to talk in, in a second about um, sexual assaults. So this is a kind of a warning for you to prepare yourself if you need to prepare yourself before this subject is approached. It's not going to, I'm not going to dwell on it for the whole evening just for a portion of it. So, just want to let you know that. So as an amazing of a performer as he was on the court, he made egregious errors in his life. The pinnacle of which was allegedly uh, assaulting a 19-year-old hotel employee in Colorado. Kobe admitted to the sexual encounter but denied assault. Case was dropped, settled in civil court, and Kobe lost some of his public persona, but eventually went on to a mega contract and regained his commercial endorsements. He moved on in a way this woman couldn't. Since the courts didn't decide what happens, I'm hesitant to make this statement, but he denied assaulting her. He said the sex we had was consensual and eventually kind of half apologized. She tells another story. The evidence is pretty damning. So I, I think he's guilty of this action. That's how I'm seeing it. I'm not, I'm not really putting it up at least in this moment. That's part of the story. We have to remember that, right? And we have to allow our grief for Kobe to illuminate our love for humankind is not eclipsed by the evil humankind can commit. Kobe's best moments don't make up with his worst. That's not how it works. But his humanity is why we grieve him. And if you turn his story into a hagiography, that's a fancy word for a saintly biography, it actually stunts our grief. 
we grieve his untimely death, and we also grieve his daughter's death. It's really hard to imagine that, losing a 13-year-old daughter. So we grieve for his wife, Vanessa, who lost her husband and her daughter together in a moment. We heard about it on the news before any other way. And we grieve uh, for this for the, for the uh, woman he assaulted, the survivor. I don't think all the reports about Kobe's improved and changed character are false or a hagiography. Apparently he called his teammates to apologize for how tenacious he was during practice. Almost mean-spirited during the practice. He, one of these guys didn't care about practice. Sam. He grew closer to his family and to God, I think. He was a Catholic and he observed communion in the morning before the helicopter crash. I don't know what restoration he did with the woman that he had <clears throat> apologized to, or what he was going to do. And now he can't. And that's a sad thing about a life ending too soon. Even a, even, a, even a life of a person you don't admire or like or think of as an enemy. The work of reconciliation and restoration stops short. It reminds us that we don't have all the time to try to fix our errors and make things right. That apparently Kobe was estranged from his family and working on mending things and didn't quite work out. His death is a reminder that we shouldn't delay reconciliation and restoration. Nor should we assume that it's a one-and-done thing, like a single apology will overcome the harm you've caused. And I mean that specifically for men who have committed similar acts to Kobe. When we don't remember the totality of a person like Kobe Bryant, we don't interrogate this uh, toxic sexism that touches everything in our society, and we don't learn from their mistakes either. We don't grieve fully unless we remember everything. So that's about grieving Kobe, about remembering him fully. But the question lingers. Can't answer. It's impossible to answer, and we don't need to answer it necessarily. But I wonder, I do wonder, did you change? Did you get better? Did you learn from your mistakes? Did you just make it look like you did? You know, I don't know. I mean, there's some evidence that you kind of mellowed out. But you, you still had drive and, and, and insistence on getting it right. And maybe that actually led to your death because you told your pilot you needed to fly in dangerous conditions and take a shortcut you shouldn't have taken. You know, that's speculation. We don't know that. How would we know that? But these are the things that we're thinking about, or these are the things that I'm thinking about. So the greater question is, well, what does it say for me? If, can I change? Do we think we can change? Do we have hope for ourselves? Can we, can we become the people we want to be? Can we become the people we think we should be? Can we become the people we think we truly are? That's the question that Kobe's untimely death and sordid life brings to us. Can, did Kobe Bryant become a new creation? Can we become new creations? I think the answer to the possibility of changing is absolutely relevant to our ability to change. If you don't think you can, you won't. If you don't think it's possible, you won't do it. Let's be inspired by the Apostle Paul here, who says the new creation is already come. Some of that I'll read from 2 Corinthians 5. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, 
we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, 16. I like how you said the news here. I think that it really is how you're supposed to say it. Thanks, Kermit. I think part of how we change and how we grow and how we evolve, how we become newly created is by learning about ourselves in the present moment. Self-awareness could be a term for it. And we have a very psychologically driven church circle of hope. Yeah, we have we have our own counseling center that many of us have uh, been a part of. And really, it, a lot a lot of it is about learning about yourself, how to become your best self, your true self, your new self. Someone said your authentic self. We really are into that sort of internal work around here. So, in addition to therapy and other things. Other tools that we use and have used are personality tests. Now, there's some; they, they, these were popular in the '70s, particularly, but they've kind of remained popular for the last half century. There's a bit of controversy over the efficacy of personality tests. Some people think they're not rooted in data or evidence. So, if you have, if you, if, you're, if you have a very empirical uh, epistemology. That is to say, if you think you can only know things that you can observe, that you can repeat, that are measurable, then you might find some suspicion. You might be suspicious about personality tests. Sometimes they're derided as a whimsical, like the signs of the zodiac, for example, or fortune cookies. You know, some people open up the fortune cookie and they think it means something to them. You know. But I saw The Simpsons where Homer wrote the fortune cookie note, and I was like, well, I think that, that, that about says it. Homer J. Or any sort of quasi-mystical tool that doesn't have any observable results. That can be what we think, right? But, but so that's one, that's, that, that's, that's, that's a suspicion you might bring, but I want to get into one specifically. We're not going to go through the whole thing, just want to touch it for a second. It's called the Enneagram. Some of you know all about it. People like it so much in Circle of Hope. We hosted an Enneagram workshop this summer with the expert Suzanne Stabile. You guys know what this is? Have you ever heard of the Enneagram before? Anybody? It's a tool that helps you consider your motives and, and desire and results. And it categorizes you into nine different numbers, each with its wings and subtypes and directions that you travel in based on your stress or health. It's a mess. It's, very, it's a lot. <laughs> And if you were here a few weeks ago for Gwen's talk, you learned of the seven deadly sins. There's nine Enneagram types, seven of which are the deadly sins, and then they added two more. <laughs> so maybe you you can look at these, sorry for the common sands, by the way. You can look <laughs> at these and figure out which type you are based on uh, what you want to be. Look at it for a second. I think this is a very weird looking chart, but... I like it. Can you, can you read it? And you're number three. I'll get there, Karina. Oh, you know. okay. <laughs> I'll get there. Blow me up in front of everybody. Maybe you can find one that resonates with you. I think tools like this are helpful for self-discovery because they offer us a grammar to describe ourselves. 
And they also just provide a scrapper to describe others, which is inadvisable. So don't go typing everybody. They're useful because they teach us how to look into ourselves and they help us along the way because it's hard to start from scratch. I'll be honest with you, I find a lot of use in the Enneagram, personally. More so than other personality tests, too. The risk with such tests is, despite their helpfulness in providing language for us, and, and every Enneagram expert will tell you this, they are of limited value. They can help you in new, discover yourself in new ways and learn something new about yourself, but you might find yourself tempted to reduce yourself to a type and leave it at that, or say, the Enneagram says everything about me that needs to be said. The hardship you might endure is that you think you, maybe you will eventually get to a place where you think you can't change. The Enneagram has room for growth and progress, but it can be hard to imagine yourself differently if you pigeonhole yourself to an interpretation of a test. And we're looking for our identities. So it's okay to do this. But if you think one way of describing yourself is describing all of you, I don't think that's enough. My type, as Karina told you, is a three. And we might feel this more than anyone because of our tendency is to adapt and shapeshift depending on the circumstance. Look, there are levels of health. Vindictive, I want I go right in the bottom. How bad can I get? Vindictive psychopath! <laughs> maybe that's me, maybe this is it. You know? It sounds so scary to tell you. I, you know? I think I'm like an outstanding paragon. I'll take that one. That seems like pretty good. <laughs> Sorry. And by the way, this is my number. I don't want to know the three is in the room. But I'm going to put yours up here too, in case you want to, you want to see your bottom of the barrel. Okay. Some of you are like murderers. Oh my gosh. Right. You know? So, the vindictive psychopath isn't even the worst of the bunch, to be honest. Anyway. That's what, that's what a three does, right? A three adapts to his environment, uh, can shape shift to different circumstances. Some people call that inauthentic. I call it accommodating. I like to meet, I like to meet people where they are. Um, honest to goodness, really. I, I really do want to meet you where you are. Um, but when you're working so hard on how you're received or perceived, you end up kind of feeling yourself as a hollow, empty person. This is specifically for this type of Like Taylor Swift had a documentary that came out oh, recently. No, but I saw one tweet about it, and, and it said something like, her whole goal in life is to be perceived as good. And I was like, Enneagram 3, you know, to be honest with you, as I'm hearing descriptions of uh, Kobe Bryant, I'm also thinking, you know, you know, you told me, that's it. Okay, so here we are, you know, not that pleasant of company. But, um, yeah, perception, how people receive you. So I can think of myself as a hollow person, and the grave danger for the three is to think of themselves that way, as, as not even uh, capable of authenticity. So I want to aspire to be a healthy uh, three. The risk is reducing myself at all. So that's one risk of, of a type of a test like this. However, the tool can also be dismissed out of hand, and not just for lack of empirical data, but because people refuse to be put in a box at all. There's no uh, 
there's a violation of our sense of liberty and freedom when a test has the audacity to tell us anything about ourselves. What could the test know about me? And for some people, any interior work can feel like a violation of liberty for someone, a violation for someone who's committed to their liberty in a doctrinaire way. I'm contrasting interior work with freedom. It kind of requires a soft heart to begin exploration, whether it's through one of these tests or therapy or spiritual direction, all of which are useful tools. So there might be something to be said about a refusal to participate. Healthy suspicion seems fine, but being overly committed or obsessed has limitations too. The risk that I'm talking about comes back to the first question we were considering. Can we change? Can we grow? You see that tools to help us do that are limited. And so they might tamp down the possibilities or they might cause us to be so defensive we don't change. At the same time, these tests are incomplete because they don't teach us values, they don't give us direction. They might describe some of our characteristics but they don't, they don't describe who we are. They don't give us a name. They don't give us a drive. They don't give us a mission. They don't give us a sense of being. That's okay. I don't even think they're trying to do that. I'm not like faulting them for that. I'm just saying they have a limited application. But in our own path to self-discovery, we have to decide those things. Who am I going to be? What am I going to fight for? How am I going to live? Personality tests don't really offer us that. It doesn't really offer us personhood. It might describe us, but it doesn't define us. What does define us? Who do you say that you are? The popular answer to that question is that we define ourselves. And I think that's true. But I don't think we decide all of it. <coughs> I think we decide who will define us. No person is an island. You're not by yourself figuring your world out on your own. You're impacted by the people around you and you naturally submit yourself to circumstances. Right? If you're afraid of being typed, if you're afraid of uh, getting to know yourself because it threatens your liberty, because someone else is telling you who you are, whether it be a test or whether it be God, don't Fool yourself into thinking you're not still serving someone. Right? Isn't that what Bob Dylan says? You're gonna you're gonna have to serve somebody. What what's that, Olivia? I said he's a four, by the way. Oh, he's a four. That makes sense. The main criticism I offer personality tests and really the entire wellness movement is that it's, it's relativized and contextualized in its immediate context, right? I think, actually, maybe even without knowing it, the definition of healthy really means healthy American consumer. That all of the best psychotherapy is just trying to make us normal Americans. Some of us are at an advantage, by the way, of being normal Americans than others. I don't want to overstate that, because I don't want to think you frolicking in your mental unwellness as you being a revolutionary. I think not. But I don't think you become fully yourself when you become a fully realized American consumer. And I think that the wellness movement on its own does that. So be, be guarded. Watch out. 
for the ends as we pursue wellness. What's happening to me? Who am I becoming? The danger is also present because it centers you as the center of your problems, and it seeks largely to pacify you as well. If you're the center of your problems, then you're the center of the solutions, and the systems of evil that surround you remain unfettered as you go to figure out a way to coexist with them in peace. If you're the center of your solutions and your problems, there's no outer systems that can be affecting you. Now, some of us can live in the world like that, because largely speaking... We're uh, middle class, white, educated, able-bodied, you know, just doing our, everything's fine, you know. Good credit, no speeding tickets, just like living the best life. You know, not all of us have that. Um, and so the solutions to our problems just aren't just within us. They're without us, too. And those systems that we leave unfettered, if we're just working on our interior, are the ones that we're serving. No matter which way you cut it, you're serving someone. And so the question for us is not, will I serve God? It's who will I serve instead? If you want to stay where you are, that's fine. But at least do it with purpose. I'm suggesting having intention and consciousness about the agency you have with whom you decide to serve. I am suggesting that we should consider the person that we're serving. And that should be somebody that, that brings you into your full personhood. And for me, that's Jesus. That's who I find my fullness in. I do believe that through Jesus, God is reconciling the whole world unto God's self. And I think that we have an opportunity to participate in that work now. This is basically what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 5. Don't consider yourself as the world does, but rather as a new creation. In the book of Romans, he'll say, do not conform yourself to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I have to say that I don't have another option than to follow Jesus in transformation. That's what I'm doing. That's who will fill me up. That's who will define me. Even as I accommodate every possible person, I still have a center. And yes, I submit myself to God because I know I'm submitting myself otherwise. Like we were singing, uh, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. That, that's, that's kind of what I'm talking about. There was another song. Was it the same one that was talking about Jesus is King? What was that one? That was the first one, the second one. Oh, yeah, sing hallelujah. Jesus is risen from the dead. Jesus is King. These are the things. These, these are my mantras, right? This is That's who I submit to. You know, I don't submit to your king. I have a king. It's already, it's already taken. You know, that, that's how I see it. That's what I'm submitting to, because I don't want to submit to another one. So, so you want to be okay with submitting to whatever system you're in, but if you're not, I have another idea. That's what I'm working on. And yeah, Circle of Hope participates in the new creation and tries to bring it out too. And so you're doing it with us as well. You see, the systems of the world are insufficient. And I think we can see this played out right before our eyes, right? especially with this presidential election front and center. Some of you might not be paying attention to it yet, but starting tomorrow you might. Um, with our favorite candidates getting unsavory endorsements from strange people that you never heard of. You know, this happened to me. Um, or we can see this, uh, at the time of writing, there was a gridlock in the impeachment trial, by the way, as I'm reading this now. No longer the case, it would appear, but at the time there was at least some tension in, in, in hope, possibly. But now it's gone. 
you can see the, the mess of the grief surrounding the basketball legend that died on one hand, or the sexual assaulter on the other. Yeah, the systems of the world are insufficient. Then they seem unchangeable. They really do. And when you're in the worst of it, you might think, I can't change either. Who am I kidding? That you're stuck being who you are and, and, and you're in the worst version of yourself, too, on top of that. Vindictive psychopath. And you're stuck that way in your personality, in your shortcomings, in your weaknesses. And there's no hope for you to get better, but I think that there is. And I think expressing that hope now is how we heal each other and move towards wholeness. Our true wellness, which seeks not just to make us cogs in a machine, but transformers of the machine. As we transform ourselves. I started by saying that the belief in, uh, in the possibility of change contributes to our ability to change. Similarly, our imagination for the world around us that's possible offers us an ability to do that now as a church. So we can expand our mind and imagine new possibilities for the world and not limit it to whatever options they give us. Same, same goes for you. Internal work and external work. The new creation that Paul's talking about is happening here and here too. We're bringing that about as a church. We're trying to. So I'm glad we're, I'm glad we're together doing it. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.